Grab your Bibles. We're going to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to jump right in because I have a lot to talk about this morning. This is the culminating message in our series that we titled, not very creatively, Nine. And the fifth and final Sunday of Advent. So we've, we've lit the fifth candle. In case you haven't noticed that each week, we lit the fifth candle. I didn't knock it over on the way up. That's, that's a huge plus. And of course, we light those candles in anticipation of the fact that the light of the world came to earth 2,000 years ago. And this morning, we're going to go on a journey together. It sort of coincides with what you just saw in that video to seek out the kingdom of God in the past and the present and the future. By the way, there's going to be noise back there. Don't worry about it. It's a family service. And we love kids. So we're going to look at the past, the present, and the future as we seek out the kingdom of God. And this passage in Isaiah 9 really serves as an excellent guide for us. So since this is our closing message in the series, let's back up to verse 1. And we're going to read the six verses that we've already studied together. And then we'll, we'll finish with our text for this morning, which is simply verse 7. Now, if you've been with us in the previous four Sundays, my hope and prayer is that you're starting to connect all the dots of this amazing prophecy. Um, a lot of us know a portion of it, but we haven't really put it in context. So I'm hoping that this series has helped. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 first. Now remember, verses 1 and 2 describe this great light that is going to come out of Galilee and shine upon a people living in darkness, which we learn, right, in light of the New Testament, that this is a reference to God's Messiah who will come, Jesus of Nazareth, who will come out of this region more than 700 years after this prophecy. Verse 1, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he, the Lord, treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Then the next three verses, verses three to five, you see a series of future promises that God will accomplish for his people Israel through the Messiah. Verse three, you shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor at the as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and every cloak rolled in blood will be for the burning fuel for the fire. So what he's prophesying here is that at some wonderful time in the future, Israel as a nation is going to be multiplied. Her people are going to rejoice as they have never rejoiced before. The rod of their oppressors, all these Gentile nations who will oppress Israel, that will be broken and finally lasting peace will be ushered into the land. Man, has Israel ever had peace in the land? It's coming. And then we have verse six, the most famous of all the Christmas prophecies, right? A child will be born, a son will be given to Israel and ultimately to all of the world. And then we see a son with four lofty royal titles that describe him as being something more than just your average human being, right? Verse six, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
And now finally, our text for this morning, what kind of ruler will he be and what will be the marks of his kingdom? Verse seven, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So as we step back now and look at these seven verses after five weeks together, we see a couple things. Isaiah, first of all, prophesying the first advent of Christ, the first coming of Christ out of Galilee, including his birth, and then also this indication that he will be both fully human and fully divine. And then we also see here some amazing promises that cause us to go, wow, that hasn't happened yet. And so we start to look to the future, a time when the Messiah will reign on the earth and then beyond, all the way into eternity. So this passage is so loaded with significance. Now, I want you to look on the screen real fast. Uh, just, I'm gonna break this down. This one statement that comes out of verse six at the top and then verse seven, and you see it color-coded there. These are two aspects of the kingdom of God that still remain to be fulfilled in the future. The words you see there in pink Tell us about Messiah's future reign on the earth. That's the key, on the earth. He will rule over an earthly government. He will reign from Zion, from Jerusalem, on the throne of David. And he will rule the entire world with justice and righteousness. And by the way, take note, whenever the Bible talks about David's throne, it's always referring to an earthly throne. It's always connected to Jerusalem and the land. So we should avoid spiritualizing that and trying to make it sound like it means Christ's throne in heaven. It's an earthly throne. Then the words in yellow reveal a much greater aspect of this government. They point to the eternal nature of Messiah's reign. Now listen to how the CSB translates that first sentence in verse seven because I like the way it does it. It says, the dominion of his government will be vast and its prosperity will never end. There'll be no end to his reign. And that's the whole point. The very last word there in that statement of verse seven is that Messiah's reign will ultimately last forever and ever. Amen. Right? So let's talk about this. The kingdom of God. That's how I want us to prepare our hearts to celebrate Christmas this year. The kingdom of God. Now there's a lot of confusion about what that term means. Is it actually a kingdom? And if so, can we point to it? Can we find it? Is it on a map? What is this kingdom? We often talk about Jesus being a king, but then we acknowledge that when he came the first time, he never actually ruled on a throne, right? Never did, never physically served as a king. But then we talk about him being a king now, but he's not a visible king. But we do believe that one day he will be a physical king over a visible kingdom, but does that mean he's not actually reigning now? So there's a lot of confusion and a lot of questions that we need to answer. My goal in doing this this morning is so that we can be encouraged to celebrate Christmas well in the present, but also to keep our eye on this greater celebration that is coming someday when the, when the Messiah returns. So there's a number of unique aspects about the kingdom of God, and they unfold from eternity past all the way to eternity future. The first thing that we have to point out, and I'm just going to go down a list here, the first thing we have to point out when we talk about the kingdom of God is always we start here with God's sovereignty. And by sovereignty, we mean God does as he pleases. He does as he pleases according to his will. 
because God possesses all authority and he exercises that authority over every square inch of the universe, over all of creation. He reigns over all nations. He reigns over all people at all times and in all places. That's where we start. The scriptures continuously bear this out. Psalm 103.19 says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 47.2, the Lord most high is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Proverbs 8.14 and 15, God says, counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. Power is mine. By me, kings reign. By me, rulers decree justice. He's sovereign over all of it. Daniel 4.17, the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind. Some of you know the story of Paul when he goes to Athens in Acts 17. He says this to the crowd. He says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and their boundaries of, the hab- of their habitation. God sets all of those things in motion. He's sovereign over it. God even governs the actions of his enemies to accomplish his purposes. That's how sovereign he is. Peter prays this in Acts chapter four. He says, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, listen now, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God is working all things according to his pleasure and according to his will, even moving the hearts of kings, right? Even his own, en- his own enemies. He is causing them to bring his purpose and plan uh, into fruition. So God reigns over the earth. He reigns over the nations, the lives of all men. He rules over kings and presidents and prime ministers and all things that take place down here on earth further his plan and his purpose, which he decreed before the foundation of the world. That's how sovereign he is. So when we think about the kingdom of God, we ought not think in terms of of, uh, kingdom like, when we think of kingdom, we think of a geographical place with boundaries and with buildings and with people and institutions. But the kingdom of God transcends all that by far. It's more of a reign. It's a domain over which God reigns. And again, that is every square inch of the universe plus the heavenly realms, the spirit world, which is not even visible to us. He reigns over all of it. Now, later on, we're gonna talk about this kingdom coming to earth. But in terms of this sovereign aspect of the kingdom, it's different. It doesn't come because it's it's always been. It doesn't come because it's always been. It is primordial. It is unavoidable. It is eternal. And so from this perspective, this universal sovereign perspective, every human being is actually in the kingdom. They don't have a choice because God is sovereign. So it doesn't matter if you're a believer, unbeliever, false worshiper, agnostic, atheist, you were a part of God's sovereign kingdom simply because you're a creature in this world. So we have to start here. This is, this is the ultimate picture of God's kingdom, every square inch of the universe. Now, To recognize the second aspect of the kingdom, we have to come out of heaven and we have to come down to the earth where fallen human beings live and where spiritual powers of darkness are present and active. And this takes us all the way back to the garden, even though you don't see the word kingdom in Genesis one through three, as soon as you start to read the story there, you get the idea that this being who is called God in their very first verse of the Bible is reigning. 
He's reigning with power and wisdom. He is eternal in nature. He brings all things by his word into being. He establishes what is right and wrong, and he holds people accountable to it. He does all of those things. But then very soon, you find this concept of God's kingdom being narrowed. It comes in a narrower sense, right? Uh, Narrower than this universal sovereign reign. It comes in terms of a particular people. The kingdom of God is specifically given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to their descendants. And at the core of that gracious choice is that God calls this unique people, this, this group of people, to be a light to the nations of the world. The kingdom comes to Israel. And we see God establishing his chosen leaders, men like Moses and Joshua and prophets like, like Nathan and Samuel. And they become what we call under-reigners. God is reigning. These are under-reigners. They, they guide Israel. They teach Israel under the authority of Yahweh, the sovereign king of the universe. Now, we fast forward then to, to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7, and this is where the dynastic rule of David comes into play. God establishes the throne of David, and this becomes a thread that runs through the rest of the Bible and ultimately points us to the Messiah. And this is what we read about already in Isaiah 9, right? A child is born, a son is given, and on the throne of David, he will reign. And among the royal titles that he has, imagine this, he is the father of eternity, and he is El Gibor, right? Mighty God. So for anybody paying attention back then who who actually believed what Isaiah was saying, believed his language, he set in motion an expectation that someday a king would come to Israel whose very ontological nature would be eternal and divine. Imagine that. But then trouble. Trouble comes in the form of what? People. Darn people, right? Soon after this prophecy of great hope is declared, we see God righteously judging his people for many years of idolatry and rebellion. And the northern kingdom of Israel, right, falls, is conquered by the Assyrians. And then the southern kingdom of Judah soon follows, and they are sent into exile in Babylon. And guess what? There is no Davidic king in Jerusalem. No Davidic king. And it seems bleak for the covenant people of God. Solomon's temple is destroyed. The city of Jerusalem, the walls are broken down, and there's no king on David's throne. But the Lord is faithful to his promises. So what does he do? He calls his people back, his remnant of believers, to come back to the land. And yes, they they build a second temple, and they repair the city walls, and that's all good news. But guess what? There is still no king on David's throne. Because the Jews, even after coming back to the land, are still, they remain under the thumb of a Gentile nation. Now the Persians, they're under the thumb of the Persians. And so to our shock and dismay, and maybe you've never thought of this before, we close the Old Testament and there's no Davidic king on the throne. Now, if you were a Jew, a Jewish man or Jewish woman, and you read that and we closed the book of Malachi, what would you think? How, how would you process that as a Jew? Like, whoa, hold on. All these promises of a Messiah, of a great king, an age of peace and prosperity, but it never comes to pass. But then you open up the New Testament, right? This is why we're Christians, right? Amen? We open up the New Testament. The first words in Matthew 1 are what? The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. 
the son of David. Amen. And there comes a whole series of declarations about who this Jesus is and what he will do. All these amazing declarations that we celebrate at Christmas time. The angel visits Mary and he tells her that her child will be great and will be called the son of the most high. Can you imagine that as a mom? The son of the most high. God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. That's familiar language, isn't it? So is this child, the child of Isaiah 9? How else could you interpret it? The angel visits Joseph in a dream, and he tells him the child that Mary is carrying will save his people from their sins. Who does that but God? When the angel announces Jesus' birth to the shepherds, he says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Messiah, the Lord. Even the Magi from the east recognize that something spectacular is happening and they follow the star all the way to Judea to ask one question. Where is this one who is born king of the Jews? This is why we love the Christmas story, right? This is why we love to sing these songs. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Joy to the world. The Savior what? The Savior reigns. The Savior reigns. He rules the world with truth and grace. We sing that song all the time, and we don't stop really to think about those lyrics, do we? How much they line up with Isaiah 9. How much they line up with Luke chapter 2. And by the way, when John the Baptist and later Jesus himself begin to preach to the crowds, what type of kingdom language do they use? They say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, which is, can be translated, repent for the kingdom of God is coming near to you, right in your midst. And then from the Sermon on the Mount to all the parables, the theme of the kingdom is constantly being taught. Even the miracles, the raising of the dead, all of it points to this future time when the kingdom will come in all of its fullness. It's all foreshadowing of the fulfillment of the kingdom. But then we look at the disciples, these poor guys. They're not getting it, are they? They're not understanding the kingdom concept. Like us, to them, a kingdom meant... Well, you have a king who leads an army and rules in power, but Jesus, our rabbi here, who we believe he is who he says he is, but he doesn't seem to want any power at all. He's not chasing the the reins of power in any sense. In his 33 years of life on the earth, he never sits on the throne of a human government. He certainly never leads an army. How do you explain it? Well, we know, of course, right? His first advent from the Christmas story to the cross was only part one of the mission. We know that. But it would have been hard back in that day to interpret it. The first advent was about fixing his people's greatest problem. Despite what they probably thought their greatest problem was, Jesus came to fix their number one problem. It wasn't the occupation from Rome. It wasn't they needed more prosperity. It was that they needed to, to deal with their sin that had separated them from Yahweh and the penalty that they owed for their sin. So as the angel said to Joseph, he came for that purpose, to save his people from their sins. So we already heard it this morning in the video. In his first advent, Jesus is the suffering servant. He is the sacrificial lamb of God. His mission is to be a substitute for sinners and to pay the ransom for that, the cost of that sin. That's part one of the mission. 
But even as we acknowledge that truth, we should never forget that even while he was in the flesh, Jesus was still the son of God. He was God the son, right? Even from the cross, Jesus declares his sovereign reign over all the things taking place. Remember what he says? No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. So as we continue to walk through these aspects, that, that top one, the universal sovereign reign of God, that never changes, that never ceases to be, even though we begin to see the kingdom manifested in all kinds of new ways. But now let's ask this question. What about today? What about after the resurrection, after Jesus' ascension to heaven, how is Jesus reigning today? Let's talk about the present reign of God. Right, Because this is, the, this is the world we live in right now. When we look at the world today, does it feel like God is reigning? <laughs> right? We see all the wickedness and we see the violence and the war and the calamities and the tragedies and the death. And if you might be tempted to look at the world and go, apparently the kingdom of God is on a coffee break or something. right? Because it looks so bad out there. But then we realign ourselves and we go, hold on a second now. I'm viewing this from my very skewed, limited perspective, right? Because I see so little compared to what God sees. Nothing changes, nothing has changed, nothing will change in terms of God's sovereign decree. It's unfolding in time and space. Nothing is outside of his control. We have to believe that. But during this time between the two advents, and Christ, uh, the two advents of Christ, you and I live and move and have our being in a very unique aspect of, of kingdom life. Very unique. Theologians often refer to this as the kingdom of grace, where the government of Christ operates invisibly. It's being manifested in the hearts of his elect, those of us who have trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord. That's what's happening right now. It's an invisible reign. This is partially what, do you remember when Jesus was before Pontius Pilate and he said, My kingdom is not of this world? It's partially what he meant. It's invisible. Earlier, he had said this to the Pharisees in Luke 17. He said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus is invisibly reigning today in the hearts of believers. So as God continues to sovereignly reign from heaven, again, that doesn't change. The kingdom in its current form is a spiritual rule over the hearts and lives of those who willingly submit to Christ and trust in him by faith alone. And of course, that means everyone who defies his authority and refuses to submit to him, they are excluded from the kingdom of God. That's the simple truth. To enter the kingdom, Jesus said, repentance is required. Faith is required. Being born again by the spirit is required, as he told Nicodemus. So the rule of Christ in our day is not to build an earthly government. Newsflash, it's not to build an earthly government. The kingdom is not currently political or national or even organized around civil law. That will come later, but not in the age that we live in right now. His purpose in this age is to establish his saving dominion in the hearts and lives of his elect from every tribe and every tongue and every nation across the world. That's what he's doing right now. Right now, it's all about salvation and sanctification. He is beautifying his bride for the day when we as a bride will be turned over to him on the very last day. That's happening right now. Now, in the midst of this, 
period that we live in, this coming near, Jesus has a specifically wonderful role to play. Remember, after ascending into heaven, God the Son, who, by the way, God the Son ascends into heaven, still maintaining his human form, right? His glorified human form. He took his rightful place at the right hand of the Father, and he rules in a particular role within the Godhead. Here's how Paul describes it in Ephesians 1. You probably know this passage. It says, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Listen now. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So in the present right now, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is invisibly ruling and he is sustaining the entire universe by the word of his power. And in particular, he is reigning over and through his body, the church. That's us. That's his role. And he's also functioning, and this is, I think, the most beautiful picture of this kingdom aspect. He is functioning as our, as our mediator, our, our great high priest, the one who intercedes for you and I before the Father. John talks about it in 1 John, right? He says, John says, I'm writing to you these things so that you may not sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate before the Father, Jesus, the righteous one. Anybody glad for that? Good. But then listen to the beauty of, this is from Hebrews chapter seven. Now, if I've lost you already, focus, because this is so great. In Hebrews seven, it says this. Many have become priests since they're prevented by death from remaining in office. In other words, human beings take on the role of priests, but they keep dying. So they got to keep naming more. He goes on. But because Jesus remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. For this is the kind of high priest we need. You ready? This is the high, kind of high priest you and I need. One who is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day, as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. In this age of the kingdom, this manifestation of the kingdom, that is our great high priest at the right hand of the Father. So it's clear that all this is going on. God is sovereignly reigning over the universe. Christ is reigning in our hearts and over the church. He's interceding for us as our high priest. Now here's the challenge. Here's what makes it difficult for us as children of God. We're not satisfied with that. We want the kingdom completely, don't we? I mean, have you ever woken up and just in your prayer time, you're like kind of discontent? You're like, Lord, I'm so grateful for my salvation. I'm, I'm grateful for this future. Can I have it now? I'm like, you're like the kid you know, on Christmas Eve. Can I just have my gifts now? We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We cry out, come Lord Jesus, because we're worn out by this world. It's tiresome. The fact is right now in this age, we see the kingdom of God being contested and opposed all around us. We wish it weren't so, but it is. All kinds of opposition, and we feel it every day. We, we feel the pull of temptation, right? 
We wrestle against very real spiritual powers of darkness. We battle with our own flesh, don't we? All those things are taking place. And so the Bible says we groan in these earthly tents. I groan more than you because I'm old. But we groan, but, and creation groans. All of it is groaning under the weight of sin. So yes, the kingdom of God has come near to us in the person of Christ, but it is a constant battle right now. And the Bible tells us it will be. The sower goes out and scatters seed. And what happens? Most of it doesn't take. You're like, but hold on a second. You're sovereign. Why doesn't it all take? He says it doesn't all take because some of it lands on hard soil. Some of it gets choked out by the worries of the world. And some of it gets scorched by the sun. And sometimes the enemy comes and snatches some of it away. It's a battle right now. Even in the church, both wheat and tares grow together. This is the age that we live in right now. So there's this sense that the kingdom of God has dawned. We're in this already stage of the kingdom, but it's not yet because we don't have it in all of its fullness, not even close. And that's what causes you and I or should cause you and I to constantly long for the return of Christ, to enjoy the fullness of the kingdom. But the clock's ticking, isn't it? Are we starting to see it more than ever? The clock is ticking This age of God's grace may soon come to an end. And that invisible spiritual reign of Christ very soon may suddenly and very shockingly to the world become visible and physical when he returns. And so let's go back to our text in Isaiah. What again was the prophet of God seeing at that time? First, that Messiah would come out of Galilee as a great light. And he did, right? We can check that one off. But then Isaiah seems to look right past the age that we live in right now. He looks right past it and he looks forward to the Messiah coming back in in a glorious reign on the earth. To the time when he returns in power, not wearing a crown of thorns anymore, but a crown of glory. That's what what Isaiah seems to look at. Did you know that uh, when Isaac Watts wrote the hymn, Joy to the World, he wasn't thinking of Christmas? Hate to burst your bubble. He did not write that as a Christmas carol. I mean, there's reasons why it applies today, but you know what he actually had in mind? Second coming. That's what that song is about. He based it on the text of Psalm 98. Listen to some of the, some of the uh, verses in Psalm 98. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises, let the rivers clap their hands, let the mountains sing together for joy, more of joy. Listen to this though. For he is coming to judge the earth. Oh, <laughs> oh, for he's coming to judge the earth. That's the second coming. So that, that joy that he's, sing, that he's writing about is about the return of Christ to judge and to reign in this physical kingdom. So Isaac Watts was thinking about the culmination of things, not the incarnation. And it's a great reminder for us that Advent really is only the beginning. We are, we are in the middle of this whole manifestation of God's kingdom. It's only really the beginning. And so when we celebrate Advent, we're looking forward to what, what Paul described in Titus 2 as the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Did you catch that? Jesus is called our great God and Savior. And so the kingdom of grace will someday give way to the fullness of the kingdom of glory. Uh Oh, I'm one behind, aren't I? Yep, there we go. To the kingdom of glory. When Jesus comes back to rule from Zion. 
Now, it's important that we see these two kingdoms not as, as different in nature, but only different in degrees. They're, they're the same kingdom, just in a developing or progressive fashion. Think of the kingdom of grace that we live in now as a seed that's being planted and it's starting to grow. But when the kingdom of glory comes, it's the flower in all of its, all of its beautiful glory. So first, the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of Jesus reigning on David's throne. As Isaiah prophesied, he will reign over a worldwide government established and upheld in justice and righteousness. Can you, can you picture that? A worldwide government. You see this in verses three, four, and five of Isaiah nine. Israel's enemies are defeated. Peace is ushered in. And the people, it says, will rejoice in his presence. He will take the mantle of government upon his shoulders and all of the nations of the world will submit to him. And according to Revelation 20, that reign takes place for how long? A thousand years. We call this the millennial kingdom. And listen to the intensity of the language that describes this kingdom, this millennial kingdom. I, there, listen, guys, there, if you want to look at, if you want to talk about and prove the millennial kingdom, I know everybody likes to jump to Revelation 20, but look in the Old Testament. Because I said, when we close the Old Testament, there's a whole bunch of promises that remain unfulfilled but they will be in the millennial kingdom. I'll just give you a portion of two uh, passages that, are, that speak to the, sort of the intensity of this kingdom. Zechariah 14 says, Behold, a day is coming, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. Not a portion of the earth, not the Middle East, but the whole world. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. And there will no longer be a curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. The best passage, if you want to read about the millennial kingdom, go to Isaiah chapter two. It says, now it will come about in the last days. When? In the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord, that's Mount Zion, will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills. And listen to this now, all the nations will stream to it. All the nations, like Muslim nations, yes. Hard to believe, right? All the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Why will they do that? Because God is reigning from Zion. Would you not make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem if you found out that God in the flesh had returned, glorified, fully man, fully God, reigning in Jerusalem? Would you not make that pilgrimage? course you would. Let us go to the mountain of the Lord that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he will judge between the nations. He will judge the entire world and will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. He will usher in, he's the prince of peace. He will usher in peace for a thousand years. Wow, what a picture. And as glorious as that time is, it gets even better. It gets even better. At the end of that thousand year reign, what happens? Another aspect of this kingdom of glory is manifested. The final judgment and the eternal state. And John describes in Revelation 21 how the first heaven and the first earth, that's where we live today, will pass away. 
And in their place will come a new heaven and a new earth with a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And he shall reign forever and ever. We like to sing that, don't we? What song is that, Grant? Is that Handel's Messiah? And he, no, I'm like, I, I almost sang. That's super dangerous. But don't you want to sing it right now? Grant, you want to lead us? No, okay. And he shall reign forever and ever, and us with him. And every believer will reign with him forever and ever. And at that moment, all the expectations, going all the way back to 2 Samuel 7, all the expectations of the Davidic covenant will be fulfilled, where it says, God says to David, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And in that day, friends, there'll be no more rebellion. The kingdom will no longer be contested. All, every enemy will be destroyed. Paul actually describes this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Here's the order of things. Christ the firstfruits, right? He's the only one who's been resurrected, right? Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, at his coming, those who belong to Christ, that's us, then comes the end, he says. When he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be abolished is death. Tied up with a bow, right? And so Christ will reign until that work is completely finished. And in that moment, he alone will be left standing. And then he will hand over the kingdom to his father. Beautiful. And death and Hades will be no more. Death and Hades will be no more. Those of us who have trusted in Christ and longed for his coming will, as children of God, finally experience the not yet, the fullness of our inheritance in him. So there it is, the manifestations of the kingdom of God. The top one, always in place, always will be in place. And now we're just working our way through these various stages. Now, it's possible for any of us to, to hear this sermon and to read these passages, this description of the kingdom and say, you know what, Jeff, that sounds pretty wild. Sounds too good to be true. What if I don't believe it? Well, I don't disagree with that. It does sound absolutely amazing, and it's pretty overwhelming in scope. Think about what, is it, what kind of power does it take to rule the nations of the world, to turn the entire world to submission. Pretty overwhelming in scope. And I think that's why Isaiah finishes his thoughts in verse 7, look at verse 7, with that final statement. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So he's like, lest any of you begin to doubt that God can do as he pleases, or you begin to doubt that what he has decreed will come to pass. It's almost like Isaiah wags his finger at his readers and says, uh-uh, don't doubt. Know that God is zealous for this. This is his ultimate passion. This is God's ultimate passion to wrap things up and to, to have us in his presence for all eternity. The zeal of the Lord will do this. And because he's the Lord of hosts or the Lord of heavenly armies, it's like Isaiah says, it's not hard for God. It's, it's big for us. It's not hard for God. He will accomplish this just as he's promised. 
So friends, it's great to observe Advent with you for another year. But again, remember, Advent is just the beginning. In fact, you could call it the beginning of the end. That's what we're in right now. The end that we as Christ worshipers long to see and experience. And so the reason that we sing, the reason we can sing with hope and joy in our hearts today in this age of wickedness is because of these promises that we have for what comes next, for the eternal life with our Savior. And so it's my prayer that the prophecy of Isaiah 9 really it changes the way you view Christmas. It changes the way you celebrate Christmas. Not just, not just this year, not just tomorrow, but every year. Go back to it each and every year. See what it says. A child is born to us, but not just any child, right? And a son is given to us, a one and only son, unique, both fully man and fully God, the only person ever qualified to be our high priest. His name is Wonderful. He is a great counselor. He is El Gibor. He's mighty God. A child, yes, mighty God. He is the father of eternity, and he is the prince of peace. And, friends, he's coming soon. Get your hearts ready. He's coming soon. Joy to the world. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen? I want you guys to bow your heads. I'm going to give you a little bit of time. I just hit you with a lot, so I'm going to give you some time to process through that on your own just a bit as the worship team comes back up. Just spend some quiet time praising the Lord for his promises and for his goodness and for his faithfulness. Anything that you heard this morning that struck your heart, let's pray for a few moments and then we'll, we'll sing some more.